Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We welcome all of you on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television worldwide to the very unretired Mark Carney of Canada and the United Kingdom, the former governor of the Bank of England, went right back to work after that tenure uh, with the UN Special Envoy for Climate Action and, of course, uh, his work uh, in other areas of finance. Governor Carney, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. The Paris Accord unraveled, TPP unraveled. We now have Xi meeting with Biden over Zoom or whatever, uh, and they're going to talk climate. What kind of agreement can we get from Biden G on climate? Well, uh, first, Tom, thanks for having me on. Um, I, Biden G, uh, Suga, uh, Trudeau, uh, Johnson, uh, uh, 40 world leaders uh, coming to this summit that the president's called for the next few days. Uh, I think we're going to see, we are going to see some big announcements from um, some of the G7 economies. Uh, I'll let them uh, unveil those as they come. Uh, that's the first point. The second, um, it is encouraging that uh, President Xi is part of this summit. It's also encouraging that the uh, private sector is leading the way. And uh, part of what's coming out on the eve of the summit, as you know, is, uh, is a big, big announcement uh, from the core of the financial sector. Uh, Governor Kearney, I'm going to make it real simple. You were born in the north-northwest of the Northwest Territories. I'm okay. suggest none of our authorities have ever been as far to the Arctic Circle as you. The Arctic Circle is melting. Antarctica yeah. has glaciers moving. What is the urgency to a northern guy like you to get this done? Well, there's an urge. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we did drag uh, the G7 up to a Callaway, you might remember, Tom, about uh, eight years ago. Uh, so that they got close um, and they started to see some of the impacts. Look, there is an urgency to this. Um, we're, we're tracking as a world. You said Paris didn't succeed. It succeeded in the objective. It got people in. But uh, the policies are still consistent with a world that's north of three degrees, warming north of three degrees. So this is a, a critical year for action. There's tremendous momentum now. Uh, we need to uh, reinforce that momentum. And again, having 70 trillion of uh, private capital coming behind net zero, which is what's been announced today, uh, is the type of momentum the world needs. Let me ask a rude question. How do you convince the United States Senate? Uh, you can, well, you, first it's uh, in the United States uh, interests uh, directly in terms of the impacts of climate change. It's also fundamentally, and I'll refer to the comments of Secretary Blinken uh, a couple of days ago, this is fundamentally an issue becoming an issue of competitiveness, of economic competitiveness. Uh, the world is moving in this direction. Uh, the firms that uh, that are innovating, that are lower carbon, that are part of the solution, uh, and the financial institutions that are getting behind those solutions are doing very well. They will do much, much better. Uh, this is where the world's headed. The question is pace. Uh, the U.S. is in many things uh, should be the leader, can be the leader, and uh, those countries that are the leader will uh, reap uh, reap the rewards as they should. I love that Tom's still referring to you as Governor Carney. Mark, should I we continue it. doing that? Do you want me to keep that up? That's an American yes. thing. I haven't That's done that for a long time. I haven't John, done that for a long, long time. We're not rude like you lads from Britain. We always do that. We <laughs> Well, Mark out. had to put up with a lot of that in the news conferences on Threadneedle Street. I'll go with it. Governor Carney, I remember a news conference at the back end of 2013. 
You were yeah. fresh in your tenure at the Bank of England and everybody was worried about bubbles elsewhere and why we needed higher interest rates. And I remember a line from you, we don't set monetary policy for inside the circle line. Now, if you live in London or appreciate the underground system in London, you'll remember that quote and you'll know what it means. So, Mark, I want you to help us understand the moment we're in right now as well, the financial instability stability concerns that go with very low and exceptionally low interest rates yeah. for a long, long time. Two things, uh, John, uh, thanks for remembering that. Um, we do set financial stability policy uh, for inside the circle line or the equivalent in the U.S. and uh, Canada around the world. Um, so it is uh, very important that uh, authorities are focused on uh, pockets of excess, uh, making sure that they don't spread more broadly within the financial system um, and undermine the recovery, which, uh, well, strong out of the gate, uh, particularly in the United States, uh, is really just getting going uh, and needs to be followed through. The word transitory keeps coming up again and again. You've been in a seat where you've seen above target inflation, north of 3%. Think of the turn of 2017, 2018. Yeah. Mark, how different is this moment, do you think? You faced downside risk to growth at that time as well. Now we face upside yeah. risk to growth. How different is this moment? Uh, it, it is different. I mean, we're in a unique situation uh, given the nature of the pandemic. I won't list all the reasons why it's different, but in essence, it's a supply shock. It's hopefully a temporary supply shock. Um, part of getting out of uh, this hole uh, is big fiscal, much bigger than we saw in uh, 2008-9, um, and also a monetary policy that uh, is explicitly targeting some degree of overshoot, a responsible overshoot of inflation. Uh, so it is quite different, um, but uh, the combination of that mix is maximizing the prospects uh, that we will get out of this. To loop back to uh, the Biden summit, if I may, uh, it's important where the hand, what are we handing off to though? Uh, we'll get this initial pop in the economy. We need an investment driven recovery in order to really have traction, really have high paying jobs. Um, and that investment driven recovery uh, is going to be uh, oriented. Part of it's around sustainability, a much more efficient economy. Uh, we need a financial sector that's there. And that's why having 28 trillion of uh, balance sheet of uh, banks led by uh, you know Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, City, uh, HSBC and others uh, announced today. That's the kind of capital we're going to need in the US and globally uh, to have a sustained recovery. So what are the negative consequences, Mark, of the incredible amount of fiscal and monetary stimulus that have been pumped into the economy over the past 13 months? Is this just without harm? Well, no, I mean, all these, everything, uh, I wouldn't say everything in moderation, uh, Lisa, but uh, everything needs to be calibrated. Uh, you know, the Fed and other central banks will have to make, as they always do, um, timely decisions on uh, the tapering of stimulus, uh, tapering first, and then uh, uh, in the fullness of time uh, with the recovery that we want and deserve, uh, withdrawal of some of that stimulus. Uh, fiscal stimulus um, in all jurisdictions needs to move more towards the type of support for private investment as opposed to sustaining uh, individual consumption. I mean, I, and I'm saying that after the uh, measures that have been passed in the, in the United States and elsewhere. So there is a pivot on both policies uh, coming, uh, but uh, where policy stance is today needs to needs to be seen through. But absolutely, Lisa, um, you know, there are some tough decisions ahead. Governor Carney, if it is an inflation, when going back to your issue as a special envoy for the United Nations, Secretary Treasury Janet Yellen said that climate change was the biggest threat to markets. That was the biggest threat, frankly, existential threat to the way that we operate. And we've seen the Fed take a more active role. Can you dovetail how monetary policy fits in with climate policy? 
Well, uh, first and foremost, the Fed's actions um, are related to uh, financial stability risks, what uh, John was talking about earlier. Um, so making sure that as we're in this transition, that lending, investing is consistent with the industries of the future and not those of the past. And uh, we don't uh, build up uh, large losses in the in the core of the system. Monetary policy is going to have to uh, largely, I think largely, certainly in the United States, it's largely a question of the uh, classic supply demand uh, shifts in uh, in the economy, so more traditional monetary policy. I will say in the UK and in Europe, uh, the way monetary policy is operated, the type of collateral that's used, the type of assets that are purchased will be influenced by climate policy. And as a consequence, that will be yet another influence on the pricing of, uh, of securities. Governor Carney, Christopher Friedland is making really quite a splash in your Canada, and I want to take it globally, certainly G7 and G8, but actually globally. Do we see in Canada, as we come out of this pandemic, a new interpretation of what government will do? Christopher Friedland has made worldwide news with a more liberal approach. Is that a tone of the future? Uh, it's uh, it's recognition. Aspects of the Canadian budget are recognition of uh, the inequalities that still exist in this economy, and uh, very important. I think the centerpiece element in that budget uh, was uh, is around childcare and, uh, yes. and universal childcare. And and you know, to speak as an economist, I mean, we're moments from you talking about. Ranger causality and uh, time series analysis as uh, speakers and economists. One of the things, of course, what that's doing, it's an issue of social justice. It also is an issue of supply capacity of the economy. You know, more women can work, uh, 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 broader participation in the economy. That's that's good and is right and is just, but it also supports, uh, supports growth. Um, but in Canada, as in the United States, what I was saying earlier, the, the, the shift uh, from support uh, needs to come uh, from immediate support uh, to households during the, the course of the pandemic, which is still <clears throat> raging here, right. unfortunately, at the moment, to that type of longer term uh, growth um, and, and a responsible fiscal policy that is consistent with uh, longer term growth. What's so great about this, folks, and these conversations that John, Lisa and I have is you get little windows for a split second into how competent these people are. As Mark Carney picks up on Granger causality and brings it right over to the political theory. <laughs> theory of his Canada. Mark Carney, I think John Farrell would agree with me that you are more qualified than any global thought leader, and I hate that phrase, Mark, <laughs> to talk about what you learned in the United Kingdom. John Farrell has beat the table throughout this entire pandemic that there is a social contract in Europe and indeed in Boris Johnson's United Kingdom that is different than America. Out of this pandemic, are we shifting to a new social uh, contract where we budget for the have-nots? Uh, I think we are, and um, the starting place is different. As I think you summarized it well, Tom. Uh, the starting place is different in Europe. It's different in Canada, different in the U.S., but the <clears throat> direction of travel is similar. Uh, we've learned uh, through this pandemic that uh, we don't have as resilient uh, economies and societies. I mean, individuals have proven themselves to be resilient to their great credit, uh, but we haven't uh, uh, had the support, we haven't had the protections we need. Uh, and, and I can extend that analogy, not just from financial stability to uh, to health and pandemics, but over to cyber uh, and other issues where government needs to play a role, um, also playing a role in the adjustment of the economy. Now, in the end, we the economy needs to move to the future 
um, and the future to grossly simplify is uh, sustainable and digital. Um, so whereas we have that support, we also need um, the dynamism and the openness uh, in order to move forward or else we're, we're supporting livelihoods of the past, not, uh, not, not of the future. Mark, we can save these questions for the end of the interview. And we're there right now, so let's do it. Do you miss central banking? Do you miss the world of central banking? Oh, just, 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 I'm going to get to the Brexit just, question in a second. Don't worry, Tom. Let's start with central banking first, Mark. Do you, do you miss it, Mark? How, no, you, how are you feeling, Mark? <laughs> I've been, you know, uh, John, Tom, Lisa, I, I've been in this room for six months. Yes, I miss it. <laughs> Mark, are the, are the Maple Leafs going to finally oh break gosh. the hope, the, the curse, if you will, back to 1967? They haven't won since your Ute. Connor McDavid and the Oilers, they're going to spoil it for him. Okay. You heard it here. I'm going with the Oilers, Tom. Tom, I've, I've, I've silenced you. I can't believe it. Yeah. He has silenced you. That's unbelievable. I've never seen that before. Just ask a Brexit question. Do you want me to ask a Brexit question? I don't think Mark wants to answer a Brexit question. Mark Carney, before you go, let's finish on the story in the UK. Things have changed so much, the relationship with Europe. Has this ended up where you expected it to end up? Uh, it's, I mean, we're more or less uh, at this stage, but we're still in the... Uh, in the early innings, to use the U.S. expression um, of the of the post, obviously the post Brexit relationship, uh, it will take uh, take a while to reestablish some of those relationships, including in the financial sector. I think the uh, the interests are still very much aligned, and I I would hope that over time, uh, the degree of uh, openness uh, cooperation uh, will uh, will increase from this base, which is which is lower than it should be. Uh, in the interests of both uh, Europe and, uh, and the UK. Governor Carney misses the world of central banking, and I'm sure you don't miss those news conferences, though. Mark Carney, you went special thank envoy for climate action governor, and finance and so former much. Bank thank of England governor. We will reach the time at which we will taper asset purchases when we've made substantial further progress toward our goals from last December when we announced that guidance. And that would that would in all likelihood be before, well before the time we consider raising interest rates. We, we haven't you know, voted on that order, but that is the sense of the guidance is that it would work in that way. The chairman of the Federal Reserve System, Jerome Powell, and that is a different Jerome Powell than when he was speaking early in his tenure. He has really grown into the conversation and the guidance forward. He gives guidance to David Rubenstein, peer-to-peer -peer conversations. This is a piercing interview off of the Economic Club of Washington. Look for it tonight at 9 p.m. And Mr. Rubenstein joins us uh, right now. Uh, David, what did you learn from Chairman Powell? He speaks a lot. He messages a lot. What was new in your conversation? I think he made it very clear that interest rates are unlikely to go up until after 2022. But the standard really is whether inflation gets to 2% or above and we can sustain at that level. And secondly, whether the unemployment rate goes down to what's called full employment. So if you get full employment, let's say 4% or 4.5%, inflation is at 2% and appears to be going above 2%, then I think he would look at an interest rate increase. But he does not anticipate that happening before 2022 is over. David Rubenstein, the arc of your career from working for Carter Mondale years ago and, and also the development with Carlisle of the allocation of capital. In your conversation, did you speak about the distortions to our capital incentives by negative real yields? 
Well, we didn't really talk about negative real yields um, because it just hasn't been something that they have really focused on. The Federal Reserve's view is that negative yields is not a really good thing to do. Now, we, in effect, have negative yields to some extent, but he's more focused on uh, making certain the economy comes back to a, a full employment situation. That's his main focus. And I would say he's very uh, confident in his position now. He's obviously been doing it for a while. I think he's got the confidence of the of the Federal Reserve Board, and I think he's got the confidence of the Secretary of Treasury, and I would say the President of the United States as well. I think he's done a very good job, and as we talked about, he doesn't talk in what I called Fed-speak. He's not an economist, yeah. and therefore he talks like a normal human being, and yeah, that's a good thing. Lisa, this is a hugely important deal. I really agree with David on that, and as I've said, Jerome Powell's really grown into being comfortable not doing Fed-speak. There is a question of whether it also highlights how the Federal Reserve has transformed from controlling the monetary system or, or sort of setting rates to a much more popular body, basically trying to speak to a broader mandate. And I think about the meaning behind full employment. Was that the message, David, that you got from Chair Powell? He is not in an ivory tower. He's not an economist. He spends a lot more time up on Capitol Hill talking to members or talking with them on telephone than the normal Fed chairman does. He regards that as part of his job. His mandate is not to worry about climate change or to worry about minority unemployment, but they do consider those factors, I think, in an oblique way. And so I think he's much more sensitive to these issues than maybe some of his predecessors. In fact, he talked about in a prior interview and in this interview, the fact that when he goes to the Fed every day and he often bikes in, um, he drives past a kind of a homeless shelter or a, home, a set of homeless tents and it affects him. And he obviously talks about it because he recognizes the impact of the economy has not been very good on many people in the lower part of the economic strata. And he does worry about that, even though it's not technically in his mandate. He also weighed in on cryptocurrencies, and this comes as uh, Coinbase went public, and he talked, them, he talked about them being a speculative asset. What's your sense of his view? I mean, do you think that that is the correct view right now, or is this a future, not the future, but a future of an enti entire investing class? I would be surprised if it disappears. It seems to serve a purpose for some people, and I do think that uh, it's likely to be around for a while. He did say that people aren't using it to pay bills and so forth. But actually, in some places now, I think you can actually use cryptocurrency to pay for certain things. It's a small part of the economy. But I think they're watching it. They're monitoring it. His main job is to make certain that the economy comes back in a reasonable way without a lot of inflation. And I think he's very, very attentive to it. Now, he did work at my firm for a number of years. I got to know him before he was in government. And I would say he's an incredibly uh, hardworking, yeah. very articulate person. I think uh, I think the, the fact that he has a close relationship with Janet Yellen is a plus. David, I must digress in that you are familiar with the entrepreneurial spirit of the Glazer family of Rochester, New York, the acuity and financial wisdom of John Henry of the Fenway Group. All these people dabbled in English football. We have seen a complete debacle of people with a lot of money trying to impute a business plan on a culture in society. What is your observation of the collapse of this soccer league across Europe? What is your observation of how fancy guys got this so wrong? Well, a lot of American entrepreneurs did make a fair amount of money investing in uh, European soccer, typically uh, 
uh, British, uh, British soccer teams. And a lot of people were surprised when the Glazer family originally bought Manchester United. It turned out to be a very good deal. And I think John Henry's investment turned out to be good, too. Whether the new effort will work or not, it's too early to say. But it is interesting how so many wealthy people today want to invest in sports franchises, not so much because they love the sport, because they think it's a good investment. You know, 100 years ago, or maybe 75 mm -hmm. years ago, people often bought sports teams because they really loved the sport. And while I wouldn't say these people dislike the sport, right. it's basically an investment kind of process now. David, it's a slow day. I got to make some news quick here. How much do you love the Baltimore Orioles right oh, now? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, I did grow up in Baltimore, and I am a big fan of the Baltimore Orioles, and I am hopeful that they can uh, live up Keep to their going. glory days when I was a young person. And, uh, I'm sorry? See how he, he stepped around that, Lisa? Yeah, the headlines David, are just, I just think rushing you, out. The, the, uh, the entrepreneurial spirit you would bring to the Orioles into an American league, it would be wonderful. <laughs> Well, I'm, right now I'm focused on this interview on the Jay Powell, which is being broadcast tonight on Bloomberg TV. Um, I spent an hour with him. Well done. And uh, we've, we've edited it down. Well done. And I would say that the producer on the show, the producer on the show has done a wonderful job of editing it down. And I should say, Kelly, I want to congratulate her on just getting uh, engaged uh, this weekend. So thank you for uh, there we go. Uh, for that and for all the good job you're doing in editing this interview down. I think it's, look, if you want to see Jay Powell in kind of up close in person, mm -hmm. this is a good way to do it because he really does open up. He's fairly frank, and I, I would say I have a good relationship yeah. with him, and I think he was fairly open about it. David, thank you so much for thank mentioning you. that and, of course, what Kelly's been doing for you on all these interviews from Jeff Bezos and on as well. David Rubenstein with Jerome Powell, and as Mr. Rubenstein mentions, it is a piercing and different interview than the usual that you hear from yeah. uh, Jerome Powell. Ibrahim Rakbari joins us now, City Global Head of FX Analysis. Now, Ibrahim, the conversation, the, the debate is pretty simple. Has we just paused or are we set to reverse? What do you think it is, Ibrahim? Look, great to be back on the show. Our view is that we're only pausing uh, and that we are very much in what you call this exhaustion phase where a number of, I think, the more challenging trend, the trends have exhausted just as much as maybe the, the stabilizing forces that we've seen over the last two weeks or so with you know, rates probably finding just about uh, a bottom, but also actually some of the more positive sentiment about maybe peak, peak pessimism about the third COVID wave in Europe or maybe in a place like Brazil even, uh, also already being reflected to some degree in, in market prices. So we think this is probably no more than a period of consolidation, but that that cyclical trade still has further to run in the coming months. Ibrahim, within your very sophisticated notes, there's a lot of mathematics on correlations, on the linkages of asset classes. How linked and smooth are the dynamics working right now, or is it all distaff? Is it all discrete and separate? Well, they have been somewhat unstable for, 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 for quite a while, and that's in line with, I think, these, uh, if you like, the most fundamental market trends changing. But I do think there's one correlation that is both unstable, but equally ultimately very stabilizing for broader, mar broader markets, and that's between rates and risk assets. And the fact that we've seen probably the volatility of U.S. rates uh, top out here, that we are probably in a range for the U.S. 10-year rate of between 150 and 175 for the time being, I think that puts us back into a world where uh, equity prices and risk assets can resume their ascent. So it is 
not quite maybe a negative correlation that is re-established there, uh, but there is hope for the so-called risk parity trade now that uh, U.S. rates have, have probably peaked in the short term. Ibrahim, I've seen a lot of analysts talk about the reflation trade as a monolith, basically this idea that it has been consistent throughout the past few months. It has not. The nature has changed significantly over this period of time in terms of what's getting reflated. The U.S. was the dominant reflated trade based on the economic prowess of the nation. Why is that not going to continue as the reflation trade gains traction, as you say it will? Yes, I mean, I would highlight two, I think, changing developments over the last couple of months that are notable. One was, as you said, U.S. exceptionalism. And there, our view is we've probably peaked out in the exceptional nature of that. And the rest of the world does have hope of maybe catching up somewhat, not converging, but catching up somewhat. But the other is that even in the U.S., what's happened over the last month or so is investors have decided that they are not extrapolating that exceptionalism too much further out. So if you look at uh, U.S. rates, U.S. inflation expectations, if you go a couple of years out, when investors are telling you we're getting a big impulse to growth and inflation in the very short term, but further out, we might well be going back to where we were. And again, that was very important mm -hmm. for where U.S. rates are, and it's very important for where the U.S. sits relative to the rest of the world. Our view is we're still in a more or less synchronous global recovery environment a few months from now. Ibrahim, give us a conviction of the dynamics of the euro. We've got eight, nine, ten houses, for the most part, all looking for stronger euro, but it is a path of 123, 125, even out to 130. I need to make some news here this morning. Give us a Citigroup <laughs> conviction on that path. Well, well, we have been on the on the higher side for euro dollar for the year. We came into the year thinking it could go as high as 130. Now we think it's probably in the 125 to 127.50 range uh, as a as a target. Uh, I, I I will note that's reinforced by the more recent trends. It's reinforced by people moving back into dollar funding, which boosts the value of the euro. So cutting short positions in the euro as a result. But I will also tell you where our uh, optimistic case on the euro will end because we've already started to hear a few murmurs and noises around the French election. So later in the year, sometime in the second half of the year, I think that will start to become a market theme that will be a prime candidate to top out at the euro dollar ascent. Ibrahim, always good to catch up with you, sir. Thanks for being with us. Ibrahim Rakbari there, City Global Head of FX Analysis. Alberto Gallo uh, with us. John, I want you to go to Mr. Gallo with, with your wisdom here. But, John, I first want to talk about in the Super League blow-up, we've been making jokes about Leeds, but this is not funny. I mean, Leeds has succeeded over the last number of months, and the toughest thing in Italy, like Leeds, is Gallo's Naples, or Napoli, I believe it's called. I mean, the fact is there's a real parallel here, isn't there? And Napoli has been one of the clubs in Italy that has actually managed to challenge Juventus' dominance exactly. over the last decade, coming close to winning the title a couple of times. And they are a great example, Tom, of a club that would have been frozen out of this European Football League with little chance of joining it. And the Leeds of this world, the Napolis of this world, that have had 
in times, at times, some kind of European heritage wouldn't be able to get back in and conquer those yeah. names. And I think that's the beauty of sport, that even if you're a small club, that somehow you can climb up the ranks and get it done at some point. Give us our, give our American audience a window into this. We've got a guest qualified to speak. Alberto Gallo, Algebra's investment portfolio manager, was hoping he'd talk about the credit markets and his 2.5% gain year to date in his credit fund. Kill Alberto, it. we've got to start with Napoli first. Your take on the events of this week. Alberto, as a Napoli fan, they would have been frozen out of all of this. What did you think? Well, I think this is the time for markets to, and also society to fight inequalities. So we don't want it at the social level. We also don't want it at the sports level. So, you know, even though there's a few teams that are wealthier, you know, people want to have a game which is fair and where also, you know, the less wealthy teams can compete. Same with society, right? Where we're definitely, we don't want to go in that direction to uh, encourage inequality. You're fighting zero rates as a portfolio manager as well, Alberto. How are you getting on? This is a much tougher year because we have seen that um, at the, with the extreme crisis that we got last year, you know, we've had central banks and fiscal policy all pushing down the accelerator. The result is governments have more debt uh, and central banks have had to do more. They continue to do more. Uh, what we see today is you know, real yields are negative everywhere, uh, and there is 60% of the bond market yielding below 1%. So, you know, before and over the last 20 years, it was very easy to make money in bonds. Now it's much tougher, and that's where alpha also surprises more and is more needed by investors compared to where we were before. Uh, it's much tougher, but we still find a few opportunities. However, I would say the second half of the year, we think, would be a lot more volatile than the first half. We got some bigger risks on the horizon, and markets are very complacent now. Alberto, where do you see a boom economy outcome to see price up and yield down? I, I just I'm fascinated where you are in your head. Q3, Q4, even the first quarter of next year. How do you get there? So, you know, in the first half of the year, especially Q1, the big news was the U.S. fiscal stimulus, the new administration deploying this firepower, not just to uh, combat the virus, but also to create new growth. This news is gone. Now we have, yes, other governments spending like Europe, uh, but it's much slower. And ahead of us, we have three big risks. The first one is central banks might withdraw the punch bowl. At some point, there's going to be a discussion of tapering from the Fed. And it could be in Q3, Q4 already. The second risk is geopolitics. Russia and China are teaming up against the US in Ukraine and in Taiwan. There's also a shortage of semiconductors. That's going to affect, uh, you know, they're testing the Biden administration. This risk is not really priced in by markets. And then the third risk is that the vaccines are still going pretty slow in Europe and in a lot of emerging markets. You know, the economies, the, the non-US, non-UK economies are going to take a lot longer to reopen. So it's, it's a really K-shaped recovery, and markets are have been pricing a B-shaped recovery. So we're going to see more volatility in our view in Q3 and Q4. Today, we're at record low levels for credit spreads in high yield. Uh, in investment grade, we have the 100-year low wipeout buffer, the lowest yield level uh, on U.S. investment grade. So we're at really, really thin levels. Markets are priced for perfection. It's time to take a step back and focus on, on hedges and protection. 
So hedges and protection, can you elaborate on what protection means at a time when there's fear of rising rates of, or of, of early withdrawal of, uh, of monetary stimulus, as you were talking about, as well as are we priced to perfection on the riskier credit side? We're almost priced to perfection. One of the protection that you want to have if you're fixed income investors exactly uh, prevent a declining price from a rise in rates, from a rise in inflation. And, you know, so far, treasuries were leading the widening, but we have seen also European bonds, you know, boons and, and BTPs have been widening more. And, you know, the bar is much lower for Europe because everyone has been bearish. So for boons to go to zero, for example, between now and year end, you just need a little bit of positive news, a bit of spending and some agreements on the um, EU recovery fund. So that's going to drive boons a little bit higher. It could wipe out all your carry if you have a very high duration. In credit, similarly, we have a lot of firms that have not restructured uh, and are pretty levered, uh, trading at really low uh, spreads. You know, US high yield spreads are close to 280 basis points. There is very little chance of, um, you know, of making money during a cycle if you invest at that low level. Uh, at some point, you're going to have a you're going to have a problem. So it's just a matter of when. So the question there is how to engineer uh, strategies that hedge your portfolio uh, or to have enough liquidity to buy when other people are selling. And that's that's exactly what we're doing. Uh, you have to be a bit patient, but uh, you know chasing the market now is um, uh, is foolish in in fixed income. You know bonds are very negatively convex for investors, uh, but it doesn't mean you can't make money. Uh, you can make money when volatility comes back. Here's the conundrum that, yes, this makes perfect sense based on historical investing principles. And yet every time that we see a sell-off in rates, if it gets a commensurate sell-off in credit, you get a flight to safety. That flight to safety is bonds. The yield goes lower and we get a reset of where we were before. Put on repeat, play it again. That is what we have seen. Why are we going into a new regime where that perhaps is not the cycle that we're going into? There's two options for policymakers. One is to make the bond market reprice quickly. Uh, that would also entail higher funding costs for different treasuries around the world. Policymakers cannot afford that. So that's the second option is to impose on investors a negative real return. So have inflation at two and a half or three percent in the US, but interest rates at one and a half to two. And that's probably what's going to happen. So essentially bond investors but that means also insurance companies and pension funds will lose money slowly instead of losing money quickly. It's a second best option, but it's still a right. very bad option. So as an active manager, essentially what we have to do is to trade these cycles, these policy cycles of widening in rates, which will not right. go back to a positive level against inflation. You've also got you got you got to trade Alberto as well off of what ECB does. I guess there's a Lagarde message. Are you more interested in what she says, or are you more interested in what she does not say? We're more interested in what she doesn't say. Um, at the moment, there's not a lot of things the ECB can do. They they're basically running on all cylinders. Um, but the question is, when will the discussion about the end of the emergency purchase program start? So tapering uh, and um, and also there's other long term discussions about the strategic review of the ECB, about average inflation targeting, which are um, going in play you know, during the summer. And finally, there's another um, more important factor here, which is central bank digital currency. Uh, a lot of central banks have talked about this. 
And ultimately, this um, is something that could unleash a lot more levers for monetary policy. For example, interest rates could become a lot more negative or central banks could inject money to firms directly. So that's the ultimate frontier. It's not for today. Uh, it's not for this meeting, but it's a lot more interesting to uh, hear what they don't say. Alberto, we've got to leave it there. It's good to hear from you, sir. On football, of course, and a little bit on credit, the markets and the ECB coming up tomorrow. Alberto, good to catch up. Alberto Gallo there of Algebris Investments Portfolio Manager. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.